Hi, and welcome to the DebtWire Middle Market Podcast. I'm Bill Weisbrod, Senior Reporter with DebtWire. Today, we're, we're joined by Sean Lafere, the National Practice Leader for Alvarez and Marcel's Supply Chain Services Practice. We're going to talk about the current state of the supply chain inflation and how those factors are impacting levered middle market companies. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Hey, Bill. Appreciate being on with you. Cool. Just to start off, we've heard a lot about supply chain problems throughout the COVID-19 pandemic era. But what would you say is the current state of supply chain disruptions, especially as it pertains to North American companies? Yeah, good question. Get asked that often. Let me yeah, probably take a step back and say, when we yeah, early on into the pandemic, you know, everybody, every company fell into one of two camps. You're either dealing with peak demand or banishing demand. And what we then kind of started to see happen over the remainder of 2020 and, and into 2021 was that, you know, we really saw a massive shift away from services demand and a big spike in demand for all types of goods. And so that's pretty, you know, self-evident. Um, that alone, just that change in demand patterns would be very disruptive. But then, you know, you start to throw in what I'll call tangential or ancillary factors. You know, people are at home. They're not going anywhere. Their income's going to get spent on, you know, goods and materials they can buy. You know, then we introduce a, a massive amount of stimulus into the economy that kind of exacerbates the issue. You know, things from unemployment benefits, payment moratoriums, lockdowns. What that did was it just made it difficult for us to get people into the workforce, you know, making and moving products that, you know, consumers and companies needed. Now, yeah, I, I could ramble on for half an hour about the, the state of what happened, but really to address your, you know, your question about, well, what is the current state? Like, where are we now 24 months later? You know, the answer really is it's kind of mixed. Um, you know, for every positive sign I can give you, there's a negative one. I mean, there's some good things happening. I mean, unemployment numbers are down. Um, you know, the number of ships that have containers that are sitting outside the port of LA and Long Beach is down, you know, 30% from where it was a couple of months ago. Still a lot of capital in the market that's, you know, helped spurring growth. But, you know, on the flip side, you know, we've still got some issues. I mean, we've got a, Pretty significant labor participation problem. I think the you know last figure I saw is that we've got 11 million you know open jobs in the country. You mentioned in your in your your introduction, you know, obviously we know about the inflation pressures. I mean, anywhere seven to ten percent, whether you're looking CPI or PPI. We've got supply issues with things like you know semiconductors and other products. If you look at just backlogs for right now, things like automobiles and appliances. I, you know, in fact, personally went into a car dealer, you know, three or four weeks ago, and they said, "Why don't you come back this summer and we'll, you know, we'll talk then." And so, just kind of some some evidence of, of how this thing's, you know, affecting not only businesses but consumers as well. And you know, we unfortunately still, you know, have some headwinds just to fix a lot of these overall supply chain problems. And you know, really, I think even the the most optimistic scenario, you know, we're only probably looking at some minor improvements at least for the rest of 2022. How is that situation manifesting on companies' balance sheets and what can companies do 
to preserve liquidity in this environment if they are impacted by the factors you mentioned, if anything? Yeah, Bill, I'll probably, let me tackle that in two different ways. Let me kind of give you an academic answer to that. And then let me give you some examples, some you know, kind of client examples of what we're doing on that when you bring up that topic of preserving liquidity, obviously without you know disclosing too many details. But to me, the on the liquidity front, the biggest threat right now is is the ability to achieve or grow the top line, which essentially gives us the ability to create cash flow. And that's you know predominantly you know where we're in situations of of product shortages or you know lack of inventory. You know, so that's probably my top concern when, when I talk to companies about uh, you know the ability to create cash flow. Now, obviously, managing working capital you know continues to be improvement. Not not only where we look at this scenario where my inventory is you know likely unpredictable, um, but we're going to see higher interest rates soon, and so obviously it's got an impact on working capital. You know, I, I'm not really a, a finance guy by trade, but um, you know, something that boils down to that question as well is just what's my exposure in terms of borrowing, you know, floating variable interest rates? Uh, you know, do I have tight covenants? You know, they're going to create some exposure and they're going to put me in a pickle. And yeah, the other thing in, in talking with clients about this is just where are you at from a competitive standpoint? Are you better or worse, you know, from a balance sheet and financing perspective than you're you know, competitors and, and, and your ability to, you know, weather any kind of upcoming storm. But, you know, in terms of, so, so what does all that mean? What's important? You know, what's a takeaway from that is, is it's really making sure, especially smaller, mid-sized companies that were, you know, you're planning appropriately and you've got a management team that's kind of locked in and, and comfortable with, with cash flow projections and, and, you know, models that are in place. And, you know, as for, well, so what are some companies doing? You know, I can give you kind of some some client examples. You know, something that to me has really stood out the last call it six to nine months is the number or the amount of attention that companies are putting on essentially addressing what they've already got in place. And so what I mean by that is like we're doing a lot of work on improving manufacturing throughput right now. So you know you've got demand is high on a number of products. And companies just have a certain capacity at which they can produce. So, you know, unless you can go, you know, make your product elsewhere, you, you've got to get better at producing more within your existing facilities. Another uptick that I'm starting to see a lot of companies pay attention to is, is you know, broken AR and AP processes, along with, you know, better analytics around inventory. So it's kind of this traditional neglect of, you know, working capital and, and transparency and visibility. Also seeing a lot around what we call network optimization. So whether you're a manufacturer, a distributor, a retailer, you know, we're helping a lot of companies kind of model the optimal cost structure. So from a inventory carrying cost to a facility cost to transportation cost, it's like, what's the best way, you know, to structure ourselves? And so, you know, the one thing that those all have in common is they're you know, essentially, I think companies saying, how do I, you know, avoid making really big bet investments and get myself healthy in the near term? And if you ask, well, how is that different from what you did pre-pandemic? I, I think, you know, in my opinion, a lot of attitudes previously were, we'll go invest in a new system of sorts and we'll make everything better. And I think just the sense of urgency 
and the attention that's being paid to balance sheets, I, I think that mindset's uh, you know been shifting a little bit here over the last year. Well, yeah, I, that was you know my follow up. You know, how much room for improvement is there for you know most companies or, or many companies that you see in these sorts of things? Because it's not you know I assume they would have you know even before the supply chain got you know scrambled a bit and and there was all this upheaval. I assume there was. You know, it's not like they, they this kind of thing hadn't occurred to them before. So how much room for improvement do you see on uh, most companies to you know, optimize these sorts of things? I, I would argue there's a there's typically a good amount. And, you know, especially like I gave you that example of, you know, it's the example on, you know, AR, AP, inventory, visibility, you know, type issues. You know, interest rates have been low for a decade plus. And I just, it's my opinion that, you know, Access to capital has been pretty easy. Working capital hasn't been that important. And I think as we're starting to see, you know, a little bit of shift and that catch people's attention, you start to look at things like that and improving some of those those processes. It's just there, there's a lot of upside potential. I, you know, I'll give you a, a quick antidote without without getting too far off topic here. You know, like in the area of AR, you know, people would look at DSO and say, well, it's, you know, it's in a pretty good position. And oh, I can measure, you know, DSO by customer. And, you know, that's true. But when I start to look at like at a transaction level detail and I start to think about well, what are the process that I, processes that I have to resolve issues and disputes on customer payments? Because every time I get an invoice into dispute, I'm not collecting money for 120 or 150 days. And so it's sort of diving a little bit deeper and, if you will, leaning out some of these processes that we're you know, seeing some, some pretty significant improvement opportunities. Gotcha. And how does that differ for, you know, mid-sized companies, say a couple hundred million to a billion in annual revenue or 10 to 75 million in annual EBITDA? You know, how is it different for them that you see managing their supply chains, managing their inventory, managing their balance sheets as it relates to this topic compared to uh, larger businesses? Well, you know, I don't want to use the antidote that you know, if you're a smaller or mid-sized company, you're just simply less sophisticated or less agile than a larger company with you know a bigger balance sheet and better access to capital. I, you know, but I think one thing w- would would be pretty common is that you know, in mid mid-sized companies, you're going to typically have less personnel and perhaps fewer options. You know, than large cap companies. And so, what does that mean? That means well, sometimes it's it's just not as easy to pivot. You know, let me give you a few examples here. I, when I think about clients that are in this kind of south of $1 billion range, you know, they're, they're built from an infrastructure and a personnel standpoint for a certain size or scale of business. I mean, you've got established facilities, suppliers, and customers, and there just may not be short-term alternatives for any or all of those, you know, areas you know, like I've got a I've got a client right now that's solely dependent. It's about that size, solely dependent on coal for its operation. They can't exactly retrofit the business for some alternative fuel source overnight. Now, you know, they can do some financial hedging to to you know help with that, but that doesn't solve what's what's going to ultimately be a, a long term problem. You know, just kind of given energy policy and, and direction. Got another client exam. You know, it's heavily dependent on supply from Asia and. You know, some of these, these factory stoppages that have occurred the last 24 months, the transit issues that we all know about, well, they seemingly had little or no control over that. And yet it's had a major effect on their ability to get raw materials and 
you know, then subsequent production output. But, you know, in terms of so, so what might be companies might be doing to, to address that, you know, I actually have seen a lot of effort, probably more, I would have lost a bet more than I would have thought the last, you know, 12 to 18 months on companies trying to create a more resilient supply chain. And you hear that term a lot, but, but through geographical diversion or excuse me, diversification, but that can be a lot easier said than done. Uh, it's one thing to go find sources of supply, but then they've got to be capable. They've got to meet your quality standards. And then there's also a lot of competitors in your sector and in others that are kind of competing for that. So you just take a take, you know, the concept of I'm going to move my production to Mexico. Well, that's fine, but I've got to go, you know, either build my own plan or I've got to find some type of co-manufacturer to work with, you know, to facilitate that. And that just it's just something that I've had a number of clients that are going that direction. But, you know, you're often staring at, you know, a six to 12 month process to actually go make that uh, transition. Plus, last, you know, point on this is that, you know, supply chains are, are multi-layered. And, and so what I mean by that is you have suppliers as a company, but that's your supplier has suppliers and those suppliers have suppliers. And so, you know, any disruption along that entire value chain, you know, kind of creates a ripple effect. And I, I think it's that ripple effect concept. Uh, is what's actually going to going to take us time to recover from this as a whole. Well, to follow up on that, you know, specifically about the size of uh, of you know smaller or mid sized companies and how they're managing through what we're talking about. Any differences from what you're seeing on you know s- significantly levered middle market companies on how on on their options and their their operations and their balance sheets? You know, specifically. In, in most cases, levered middle market companies are owned by private equity funds. So is there any difference materially for those sorts of businesses that you see those that aren't substantially, that don't have substantially levered balance sheets? Yeah. I, the question on that's just going to be, and you know, similar to how I answered previously, it's going to be access to capital. I think if your company that hits a wall, private equity owned, there's going to have to be some decisions on how much additional capital are we willing to, to pump into the the company. I mean, again, you know, just floating interest rates, covenants, et cetera, et cetera, on, you know, existing debt, my ability to create cash flow on top line growth, you know, we'll see interest rates go up. You know, there's obviously, I, I think I've read that, you know, bankruptcies are like at a 16 year low right now, you know, so there's a lot of capital in the market, but, you know, I, I'm particularly interested. I know a lot of people are interested to see, you know, how, you know, the feds moves this year, you know, might affect that. And, you know, ultimately, affect the solvency of a lot of mid-sized companies. Yeah, that's definitely something that uh, we've been hearing from people we talk to and, and have been covering is, and, and are, are looking to, especially for the second half of this year. But something that's going on right now, you know, as, as disturbing as it is to see, we also do hear just how much uncertainty there is from investors and business owners out there about the impact of the ongoing war in Ukraine and Europe and, and just how you know, there's not much clarity into how that could affect certain North American businesses. I mean, are you seeing any, um, you know, just bigger supply chain disruption or any expectations of how the geopolitical situation right now is it could or is affecting the supply chain for North in, here in North America? Yeah. So the short answer is it's much bigger than I think people sort of give it credit for. And so what do I mean by that? You know, you a lot of people in North America might think, well, you know, as long as you don't have exposure into UK, Ukraine or Russia, then there's there's no big deal. But, you know, the um, you know, that's more of a conventional answer. But the reality is, is, is 
the reality is we know the effect that it's having on Europe. I mean, Europe obviously is much more dependent on both Russia and Ukraine for a, a number of things, including, you know, energy. You know, so there's supply and logistical issues there that has an effect on us. Probably the biggest thing that I would say that's coming out of this, this disruptive to us in North America is what we're seeing with commodity prices across the board. And, you know, specifically, again, going back to kind of energy, you know, we've got, you know, price of oil, natural gas, coal, you know, those things are all, you know, borderline historical, you know, highs. That's not doing us any any favors um, from an inflation standpoint. You know, the thing that people probably don't know when it comes to like Russia and Ukraine is that they actually have a, a pretty significant role in like the materials market. And so, you know, I think that I had read that like over 50% of the world's supply of semiconductor grade neon comes out of those two countries alone. And, you know, Russia is responsible for, you know, over a third of the world's, you know, palladium production. And so, you know, those are just a couple of examples where, you know, sort of ancillary things aside from just what we're seeing, you know, in terms of the price of oil or the the price at the pump. And, you know, probably, at least in my opinion, one of the more interesting or biggest questions here is just is like whether the the current administration's, you know, going to be willing to at least temporarily maybe reverse course uh, or its stance on, you know, fossil fuels in the U.S. And, you know, I see that that's a probably kind of a political hot button right now. Uh, but that definitely could serve as a relief valve. That being said, even if something like that happened tomorrow to where in theory we start to you know create a little bit more supply in the marketplace, which hopefully subsequently pushes down prices, you know, that's not going to be a problem that gets resolved overnight. There's just not a not a quick and easy button. So uh uh, the conflict, I mean, it's an interesting question. You know, we'll see how this thing plays out. I, I think if it prolongs, which many people think that it could for months on end, it's going to continue to sort of pile on some of the issues that we're, we're dealing with here domestically. Thanks, Sean. Just for my last question, no, nobody really knows and it's it's difficult to predict, but, you know, how do you see the supply chain situation playing out in the near and long term here in uh, in North America? Well, I'm bullish, you know, on the long term. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier the, the, you know, labor participation issue, but, you know, I think we're going to see technology a lot through automation kind of help with that problem. You hear a lot about reshoring manufacturing to the U.S. And, you know, one would be inclined to think, well, wait a second, we, we don't have enough labor as it is. How are we going to bring back more manufacturing? But I think the manufacturing that's going to come back is going to be highly automated. I think that in situations where we've got manufacturing that is very dependent on manual labor, I think the wage differential is just a little bit too high. I just I don't see that moving at least back onshore. But look, I mean, the challenges that we've got today create opportunities, and I mean, I'm just I think it's kind of the American spirit that I think we'll we'll get this thing solved. But I do think in the short and medium term, we're, we're in for some tough sledding. I just. I have a hard time seeing how inflation is going to temper in the near term. When we just look at wage growth, commodity prices, the amount of money in circulation right now, I just it's going to be tough to corral. You know, we're also not seeing a lot of relief in the inventory to sales ratio, which is, is like at a 20-year low. And what that means is that there's just not a lot of product on the shelf. And that's then being compounded by you're still seeing like panic buying. I mean, even in sort of like the wholesale sectors of like distributors where, you know, companies are just trying to stock up on as much product as they can get their hand on. And that's adding to short term pressure. And, 
you know, we've got backlogs on products from HVAC to, I mentioned cars, you know, we're still months out, uh, you know, on many of those products. Further, you know, if we look at it, like operations or production, we're, we're still experiencing some hurt on that. So I think like uh, Ford was in the news was it last week or the week before having to shut down a, you know, a production line, you know, due to supply shortages. I touched on energy transition a little bit earlier in the discussion. I think that what we're taking on as a country is going to, going to, you know, present some challenges. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a worthwhile goal, but you've got obviously high commodity prices today and, and, you know, gasoline that, you know, that we use today. And then, and then just the build out that we're going to need for electrical vehicles, wind and solar projects, you know, it's going to take some time and it's going to have some risk. And then we've got to solve for problems also, like, you know, for instance, we're going to need a lot of batteries if we move to, you know, electric, wind and solar, you know, and, and you take lithium. I mean, right now, lithium, the lithium market's controlled by just a few countries across the globe. I saw that China and Argentina recently entered into an agreement, you know, related to, you know, lithium production and you know, essentially almost creates an oligopoly in that in that space. And so there's just a lot of things that I think are, are headwinds right now that we're going to have to figure out here in the in the short term. But, you know, I'm optimistic about getting it over. But, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what's your timing on this? And if I have to put down a Vegas bet, you know, I think we're probably 12 months out from seeing, you know, some some uh, some actual smoothing or, or easing and, in, in, you know, what are our current supply chain issues? Well, that's all I had. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Good to talk with you, Bill. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DebtWire Middle Market Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe for future episodes.